Hi everybody, my name's Sam. And my name's Ben. And we're the, the Book Fair Boys. Boys. <laughs> Great. Do you think we got it? It's it's wonderful, I'm sure. <laughs> Probably not. I really hope <laughs> yeah, I really hope that we find a way to use it. It's phenomenal. Hi everybody, my name is Sam. And my name is Ben. And welcome to the Book Fair Boys, where we discuss all your childhood classics and our childhood classics and some things that aren't classics but should be. Or maybe some things that are classics and should not be. And beyond. And beyond. (laughs) (laughs) We're joined today by a nice blue moon Belgian ale, um, a Belgian white. And a train wreck hazy double IPA by Sweetwater Brewing. That's nice. That sounds nice. Is it nice? Um, yeah, it's good. Okay. It's good. They're listening for sure. So, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> um, well, listen, today we're going to be talking about, um, actually for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the first couple books in the, uh, Goosebumps series. And I've been thinking about Goosebumps a lot lately because, um, uh, ben and I just graduated from an, F- M- an MFA program, which uh, I can say, uh, is, I promise. <laughs> um, and um, we uh, have been talking a lot in the past couple of years about like the craft of writing and how to uh, provide your writing with all these different layers of meaning and all this other shit. And um, I've really been trying to return lately to just telling a good story. Uh, and Spooky so tales. Thinking- yeah, spooky tales, and uh, so I've been thinking a lot about um, stories that I enjoyed as a kid that were just, like, fucking readable, you know, and um, the idea of a good formula, you know, just, just telling a good story and a good formula, yeah. and I think uh, nobody does that better than some of the people that we experienced as kids, um, like uh, the woman who wrote all the Animorphs books, uh, K.A. Applegate, who's huge when I was a kid. Um, and of course, no one was bigger than good old R.L. Stein, the Scaremaster himself, who uh, only just like two days ago wrote a full scary story on Twitter. Oh my God, I was going to talk about that too. <laughs> the, <cat's, laughs> the cat it's, story. <laughs> it's really good. It is really it's, good. <laughs> it's really fun. Um, Reader, beware! You're in for a scare. Oh, you're in for a scare. Um, so today. Um, we want to talk about um, the very first Goosebumps book, the the one that started it all. It's called Welcome to Dead House, and it came out 92. Is that right? Yeah, 92. In the summer. The summer of 92. A, a good time uh, for everybody, I think. Um, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. As now adults and uh, grown, grown-ass writers, um, what we wanted to do is maybe talk about some of the things that the book makes us think and feel now uh, and what we uh, kind of see from an analysis and critical standpoint and what we see from a writing standpoint and how, um, how well these books hold up to adult eyes, I guess. Is that a good way to describe it, Ben? Would you... I'm, differently uh no i'm just gonna say this was spooky um yeah <laughs> no i think what you said was right and i'm like ready to get into it i'm like all i'm all spooked out by this book <laughs> oh great well let's let's get into it so um first of all uh can you recount some of the plot for people who maybe don't remember oh god uh the 1992 summer <laughs> blockbuster welcome to dead house um well it'll just kill you um 
<laughs> so that's the, the tagline on the cover. That's another thing about the 90s books that I love is that they had taglines on the covers. It's like you had – and this yeah. was all of the Animorphs books too. So I'm excited to see what some of the other Goosebumps taglines are. Um, oh, geez. Well, I was thinking about that too. You know, um, I was flipping through um, Grady Hendrix's Paperbacks from Hell yesterday when I was thinking about this. Um, do you know what I'm talking about, that book? I have no idea. Um, he, it's it's great. He okay. Ben's just walking away from the computer. He's <laughs> leaving. All right, um, you take this one. Um, no. Uh, so, paperbacks from hell is Grady Hendrix's uh, sort of survey history of um, paperback horror. Okay. And what what that's looked like over various decades, and he talks a lot about the uh, cover art for all these books too, and how cover art helped the genre become more of a thing, huh. and how certain artists and um, publishers sort of bumped horror into its own space like um for a time for a little while uh for example you couldn't get someone to buy a thriller unless you sold it as like a gothic romance so you have these like uh women running away from houses that are haunted huh. but they're like these uh buxom like kind of gothic romancy looking women so you would have like shirley jackson's uh haunting of hill house but it'd be like uh, you know, someone, a woman running away yeah, from the a scary woman house running away from the scary house yeah. instead of you know which indicates not at all the like psychological depths her hair like body. caught in the wind and you know her like one top button on her dress slightly open right and yeah, probably chest thrust forward the... yeah <laughs> yeah so things are flopping and flying that shouldn't be flopping and flying. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll just say that there is something really nice about, again, this 1990s books. Like you, you, uh, are picking them out of the scholastic catalog. The first thing you see is this like picture on this very thin piece of paper, this paper that's too thin to be real. Right. When you get the first right. catalog, cause it's like crimply in your hands, almost like tissue paper and you open it up yeah. and there's these pictures of book covers and, this book cover is particularly good. It's got a nice – so you've got Welcome to Dead House. It's got a nice spooky house. It's got goosebumps yeah. across the top, and then it has this it will just kill you in the middle tagline. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, it's true. It, it's got to grab you so fast in that catalog, um, even faster than if you saw it in the store. Because in the store, you can kind of pick it up and turn it over for a second. But in the catalog, it's just that, like, what, two-inch big picture. Yep. Um, so it's really got to get you um, – so the the plot um... yes <laughs> so uh <laughs> it follows the perspective of amanda um amanda benson benson amanda benson yep. um and her brother josh and they uh move into a spooky house so basically there's some convention or con contrivance where uh they had a great uncle they didn't know about who died and now they get this spooky house for free and so mm -hmm. they're moving into the spooky house, and spooky things start happening. Um, there's people that shouldn't be yeah. there. They're in the windows. Oh, but it's all—it's all pretty basic, right? It's like the the curtain billows. Yeah, but... curtain billows, but the windows closed. Like right. And this this is big goosebumps formula too. Like all the as far as I remember. So this is uh, again. This is like I probably read this book in 2003 tops. Okay. Uh, and um, I remember all the characters in Goosebumps books were 12 years old. And so I had this big conception okay. of, like, um, once I hit 12 years old, I will be an adult. Uh, <laughs> That's when so, you have to deal with real problems. Like monsters. Like, like and, monsters and the dead coming for you and, you know. Yeah, um, <laughs> people who are 
not people, you know. Um, and uh, when I was 12 years old, literally nothing happened. And um, I fell into a deep, deep melancholy. <laughs> to this day. You're like, where um, are my spooks? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really true. And Amanda is 12. Josh is 11. Um, he just, yeah. yeah, he just turned 11. So you've got like the Irish twins thing going on between them <laughs> and like, he's super intense. Um, and she's very unsure of herself. And so she keeps hearing these things. She keeps seeing these spooks, mm. um, you know, billowy curtains, hearing voices. There's a kid that's not supposed to be there, but then the kid's gone. And Josh kind of seems to be getting a little bit of it too, but the parents, and this is something that like, I feel like, I don't know if it's quintessential to any Goosebumps, but it's definitely like a lot of the stuff I read growing up, because um, I didn't read Goosebumps, so this is my first reading of this. Cool. But Ben's fresh. Yeah, so I'm coming in with a fresh perspective, but I feel like a lot of these kids' books, like, the main conflict of the beginning of it is the parents don't believe the kids about whatever's happening, or the parents are not a reliable source of authority for whatever reason, so... Well yeah i've been thinking about this a lot I, uh, my friend and i are watching the annabelle movies so i have never seen uh, i've seen conjuring one and two but i had never seen um any of the the annabelle trilogy so we're watching them and it strikes me how uh present faith is in those stories um on multiple levels where you have like uh, the catholic church uh, and then you have people who believe or do not believe uh, in the church and people who do not uh, who people who do or do not believe in the ghosts or the sort okay. of things that are happening, right? And and I think that that's um, sort of an issue that comes up in a lot of supernatural horror is the question of faith, and because this isn't like the capital T F faith, you, you know, it's it's uh, less socially acceptable to have faith in a ghost. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so there's a lot of questioning that goes on in that kind of narrative in general i think not just kids narratives but like yeah accept this new faith well and it, there's something too that's probably uh different from like my friends who have kids uh how they react with their children and i think how um millennials and maybe even like gen xers were raised in that these parents do not seem worried at all about the fact that their kids seem to be having some severe trauma like like they're they're like <laughs> oh consistently like the, like screaming in the middle of the night you know rolling around you know there's a girl yeah. that was there amanda says and the parents are like god could you just stop it like <laughs> there's no yeah. sympathy so um they amanda and josh um and their parents move into this house yes and the house is really dark and this whole street is in the sh in the shade yes and it's of so the big shadowy. trees yes big trees it's so shadowy that it's like 10 degrees cooler in the shade um it feels like night almost yeah and um the parents are like looks good to me and then they <laughs> go inside and amanda's like oh i saw a little girl standing on the stairs and she freaks out calls her dad her dad comes in um and he's like that's just a pile of clothes and she looks again and there is a pile of clothes there um and she has this moment where she this moment of doubt right and she has several moments of doubt where she's like oh i guess dad is right i guess i mistook this pile of clothes for a full fucking human um, <laughs> and, um that uh goes on a little bit and um she has that moment that's sort of the plot for the second act of the book where like she'll have 
an experience where she'll see someone or hear someone in her room and then uh, question it, question her own. Or even just have, like, it's a lot of gut sensation and a lot of not trusting the gut sensation um, where, like, there's this moment where her and Josh, they walk Petey, their dog, which becomes a very pivotal part of the story, uh, Petey. But um, they're walking him and they're just, like, out and about and they find this kid, Ray, who's kind of, like, leading them along and then there's a bunch of other kids that show up and then the kids just like form a circle around them and (laughs) you can tell from amanda's perspective like she is ready to scream she's about to freak out she's like they're slowly coming in in the meantime josh is like petting the dog yeah they've got baseball bats they're like very menacing and uh josh is just like petting the dog and ray doesn't seem concerned and then like Mr. Dawes, who's like this realtor, shows up and all the kids scatter and it's back to normal. But it's this moment, too. It's like it's not just she's seeing things and she's doubting whether they're there. It's like she's having intuitions about danger. And then suddenly those intuitions seem to be unfounded and she's justifying in her head whether she's crazy or what's going on. Right. And I I think I've heard Arl Stein talk about how pivotal that experience is to most Goosebumps books. I mean, I I don't remember what interview or article this would have been, but he says something, I I think, um, where he's like, as a child, uh, parents don't uh, believe you, right? Uh, Whatever you have going on, they just don't buy it. And so that's such a strong experience to throw into a kid's book where like, you have an experience and the parent or the adult authority figure or whatever doesn't accept it. And because they're the authority figure, you too have to question whether or not you can accept it. Hmm. Um, and uh, because they're the ones defining your reality to a certain degree. And so like, if they say you're imagining things, then even if you are having an experience where you're about to get closed in by a bunch of kids with baseball bats, you're like, eh, maybe not. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So We've got this, like, back and forth that Amanda's going through where she's, like, sensing danger, and then that's, like, turned out to be toothless. We have a lot of fake spooks where, you know, Mm. it'll end a chapter, and this is something that I want to talk about structurally. Like, all these chapters uh, do the very specifically – I mean, maybe it's a chapter book thing, and I just haven't read chapter books in a long time, but they do that, like – pulp fiction commercial fiction thing where they end on a high note and there's a lot of fake spooks in this where it's like you know and especially in the first half like it'll end with something like and then a boy grabbed her shoulder from behind and then the next chapter is like it was her brother josh like you know (laughs) there's a lot of the like false spooks and a lot of those moments happening uh throughout the middle of this there's something that makes it work better as a book than a than a movie or a TV show or maybe a TV show for sure. But I think the experience is like if you're watching a movie that's a piece of horror and you get a jump scare, you're like, oh, that's stupid. They're they're just milking it for for scare tactics. Um, but if you're reading a chapter book and the chapter ends with like, um, I got scared, you're like, oh shit. I got to keep reading with a movie (laughs) and with a TV show too. You're like, well, fuck, I got to see what happens after the commercial. But in a, in a movie, you don't necessarily have that experience. Yeah. The movie will continue playing. So you don't need that as much. You can create a consistent sense of dread in a way that like in a chapter book, uh, maybe you need to continually hook the reader, especially as like a a 10 year old who like could easily do anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this does push forward. Um, but it turns out uh, Amanda's intuitions are right, right? Like we yeah. get we get right. like um, towards like probably the last two thirds of the book, 
um, we have the big reveal, which is, uh, or I'm sorry, the last third of the book. So we're two thirds in, and uh, we find out that um, suddenly these spooks are all legitimate. There is something bad going on, and it turns out that there's um, this kid Ray that's kind of their like best friend of this like new group of kids that they've met um, mm-hmm. is in fact a dead kid. And uh, he's not only a dead kid, but he's a super spooky dead kid that can float in the air and start choking the life out of Amanda. And he's killed by light. So we have a lot of revelations that happen in this. I think it's chapter 10 or something like that. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. So like all these elements that he's doing early on are like the the town is dark and um, it's kind of clear that the that people don't necessarily like the light. When Compton Dawes, the realtor, is first showing them the house, he warily looks outside and then he urgently pushes them inside. Yeah. And those are two just like clear pieces of diction that I was like, ooh. Um, Yeah, and Josh is being like a little brat and he's like, no, I don't want to go in the house. And Compton's like, all right, well, kids will be kids. Like, let's just leave him out here with the dog, which leads to the first big conflict, right? Yeah. Yeah. PD, yeah, PD runs away and yeah. they, they track him down. And that's how they discover that there's a cemetery right there. Um, and then later they end up in the cemetery and they see all the names of all the people in town, all the kids that they've seen and whatever. Yeah. Um, and they're like, oh shit, everyone everyone is dead. Uh, and then the kids are like, yeah, we are all dead, but we invited <laughs> you here because we need um, new blood every year, right? So there is this um, ritualistic aspect to it. Uh, then they try to kill Amanda and Josh, but Amanda and Josh uh, end up like getting them all into the sunlight. Like dawn comes, uh, and they kill all the townspeople or like melt them, and they yeah. There's like some serious uh, meltiness going on here. Um, that was one of the things yeah. that, having never read a Goosebumps book, there's a couple <laughs> of there's two points that happened that were like oh wow this is uh this is actually going to be a little spooky is um once we get into that last third and we're done with all of our fake scares we have mm-hmm. first off Ray's face melts and his eyeballs fall out of his skull and go rolling on the <laughs> ground um yeah, like right. literally fall out and they killed the dog so Petey our yeah. little our little terrier Petey is he's spookified he like turns into a dead dog he's like still off screen off screen and you just and and there's a moment where ray before again in this big revelation moment he's like they always killed the dogs first because dogs know the living dead and i'm like oh god they killed Petey. Petey's dead everything's on the table now (laughs) right and uh and i love that um i reading the book i was like well the dog dying is the scariest thing right that's that's insane uh, but in the adaptation, and it's, and it's funny that that's not the last thing that happens. But the scariest thing is like, yeah, not even really part of the climax. It's just like, oh, and this other thing happened. And you're like, sorry, what? Um, <laughs> and um, so then, in the TV show, what they did is um, they escape, right? They they burn, they melt the townspeople, and they get in the car, and they're like, we're gonna run away. And then um, as they're driving away from the town, they see Petey by the side of the road, and they're like, Petey get in you son of a bitch and he gets in the car um and uh then they're like oh no what's wrong with Petey? he smells like a dead thing and then he is dead yes that's how the show ends well and he's super gray that's how you know things are dead in the tv show and we're gonna there's lots of like little things in the tv show that i think we're gonna have to get into but uh 
They've like decolorized him somehow in the TV show, so he's just a a gray dog now. And it's like, oh shit, Petey's yeah. Petey's dead, and I don't know what that means. But right, and I and I it's think what's spooky. really fun is yeah, super spooky. Um, the episode is introduced and concluded by R.L. Stein himself. Um, very Twilight Zone. Very Twilight Zone, and Rod Serling always existed outside of the space of the uh, story, so it was like. Um, you would all of a sudden find yourself in some other realm and then Rod Sterling would be like, he would come on and say, hey, the realm you're in, it's the Twilight Zone. It's okay, here's what's happening. Yeah. And that was always sort of a, a comforting device there where like you had a guide into this world um, and you would watch like um, a bunch of people try to escape a cell and then it turns out their toy is stuck inside a trash can. Um, and you're like, well, that's scary. And Rod Sterling's like, don't worry, this, is, this only happens in... The Twilight Zone. Um, <laughs> but um, the stories still exist in that realm. And so there's something eerie about that. That, like, there is a world where, like, you could be a toy stuck inside of a trash can. Um, <laughs> and Rod Serling wouldn't interfere. He would just, like, peer inside and be like, well, this only happens in the Twilight Zone. You know, uh, and he'd walk away. But yeah. um, in uh, this uh, episode... Arl Stein comes on and he's like, here's the story. Um, and then the story plays out. And at the end, he's like, um, wow, wasn't that fun, basically? And uh, he's like, here's the dog that played Petey. Um, uh, but you're not really dead, are you? Um, and then the dog is like clearly dead. And Arl Stein's like, gulp. Um, and what's fun about that is that like, you can't kill Arl Stein, right? Arl Stein's never in danger because he's the god of this universe. Yeah. There's some even subconscious understanding of that as a kid. We're like, well, R.L. Stein can't be in danger. Therefore, there is no danger. Therefore, PD is alive. Therefore, everything's okay. And then the episode ends. <laughs> yeah. So, like, um, you are still sort of saving the audience at the very last second, which is a, it, is a cool thing to do for, like, a scary story kids show. And R.L. Stein acts his little heart out too. I mean, he does and he doesn't. It's great. He does the, yeah. like, I think I've never heard a more dry reading of what was very clearly a prepared script as his, yeah. like, uh, introduction. But then, you know, so at good. the end, he's like, I enjoyed it when you played Dead Petey. You just were <laughs> playing Dead, weren't you? It's like this very, very. Yeah. And then Petey, the actor dog, like, barks up at him. R.L. Stein called himself the jovial Bob Stein for a while when he was writing oh, jokes man. before he started writing spooky stuff. So, but we're we have to get to the end of this this uh, book itself. So, like, we we find out <laughs> that the spookiness is legit. That these are somehow like ghost zombies that need to feed on the blood of the town. And then the kids come back um, to the house, and the parents who were supposed to come back from some sort of like dinner party aren't there. And mm -hmm. all the spooky kids are, they're in the house. They're like, even though we know now that light is there, Achilles heel, the kids like start turning off all the lights. And then suddenly Mr. Dawes, the realtor shows up again and he yeah. whisks the kids away. And he's saying that he saved the parents, but turns out Mr. Dawes is also a spooku. And he's gonna like basically take these kids to this ritualistic amphitheater in the graveyard. Um, and long story short, like, the kids get there, their parents are there, they're all bound up, and this takes several chapters, but, like, they're all bound up, and then the kids decide, this was the part that I loved, they're going to push down a tree, 
They decide they're going to yeah. push down a tree to, like, send a bunch of light in on these, like, spooky people. And uh, they do it. They push down the tree. It's like... They fucking do it. They just push, and the tree comes down. And, yeah. um, and there's something there that uh, we need to get back to when it comes to Amanda. Because, like, that's Amanda's part where she, like, knows something. Like, she has an intuition, and she's like, I'm going to follow it. And she follows her mm-hmm. intuition that they can push down a tree. And they actually do. And they rescue their parents. And then their parents somehow have time to call the movers and get all their stuff moved out of the house. But as they're leaving, um, Amanda goes back and Mr. Dawes and everybody who's been melted, she thinks she sees Mr. Dawes on the porch again, ready to introduce the house to a new family. So the spookiness cycle continues, Um, which I actually thought was a pretty solid uh, way to keep this from just being – I was like – so there was a moment – for me where it was like okay we've gone from child's horror to like adventure story territory because we're pushing down trees and we're saving the parents but then we come back to it and we have this nice little horror hook again at the end where it's like uh, amanda and josh and mom and dad got out of there without pd but uh there's this new family and they're yeah for it what's the what's the uh resonant hook right uh so the thing that resonates after the story is always like at the end of an indiana jones movie there's always one like thing left where you could go on another adventure or like at the end of um uh um i don't know you know welcome to dead house (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't think of another thing um yeah there's the evil is still out there yeah 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 um for sure well Um, it's like kind of like what stranger things tried to do before they decided that they had to have a more stranger things it's a very 90s novel thing to do and i think that that's part of what made stranger things is ending in the first season so great is it wasn't actually a we're going to tell more of this story because they hadn't had season two um, actually financed at that point. But you still have Will throwing up the little slugs at the end into the sink and hiding it because it's like, all right, the story goes on. And that's a very 90s novel thing. Perfect, Um, Perfect ending to say the evil is still with us and maybe Eleven could still be out there um it's like if you took the ending of inception and you were like oh gosh well you know for the last 10 years everyone's wanted to know if he's um awake or asleep so let's make a sequel fully explaining how he's either awake or asleep um yeah it was a good idea to do a season two (laughs) yeah um it's the same shit um but okay so do you feel like we got um the synopsis do you think we yeah um, so the question is what makes this different from just a regular spooktacular story? And I mean, I think that R.L. Stein's actually doing some really fun stuff here that, um, I don't know, as I was reading it, I was definitely getting some Americana, um, American Gothic vibes. I'm getting some, um, some, you know, um, gaslighting vibes. Like there are some things that I don't know you can say this book is saying, but like, it's definitely exploring some subtexts. So I know you had your own readings of this thing. Yeah, I notice, first of all, there's a, there's a big um, sort of economic um, read here. Um, let me pull up my, I took a couple notes on my phone. Um, when they're driving out to Dark Falls at the beginning of the adaptation, so the episode starts with them driving out to Dark Falls. And as you're driving, you see the chemical plant that's been closed down. 
and um, the dad says, oh, you know, the chemical plant closed, people lost their jobs, um, and even when you meet the townsfolk who are all sort of gray and lifeless, they say, yeah, we all used to work at the plants. Um, and then even the dad is on hard times, right? They, they have a lot of financial issues, it seems, and he gets this house in, he gets this house through an inheritance from his uncle, quote unquote, which we find out is just a ploy that the ghosts in the town use in order to draw people in, right? So there's a big economic read there. And what I thought was interesting is that, uh, I mean, as a 12 year old kid, economics and your family's money is a supernatural force way beyond your control, right? Yeah. Like, um, you could maybe get a job as a 12 year old, but the financial situation of your family is an entirely other realm, uh, something that you can't exactly access or um, understand. Yeah, and it's almost something you shouldn't be aware of. So, you know, mm -hmm. not shouldn't be aware of, I don't wanna say should or shouldn't, but it's like in the context of an, a story of an ideal childhood, it's something that you would be blissfully unaware of if there are financial struggles. And so when kids are acutely aware of it, as Amanda is, both in the story and in the adaptation, you can tell that there's, yeah, that there's something going on there that's, like you said, kind of outside of the realm of control. Um, and that's kind of like a hinting at, uh, I guess, destabilizing the home or something like that. But I'm sorry, yeah. keep going. No, no, that no, that's great. Uh, and that's exactly right. So um, this sense of destabilization of the home is uh, how this book starts, or is sort of the feeling that underlies the the inciting incident which is them going to this house in the first place right and so already by the time you meet these characters they are in a space of like oh the world is unstable yeah um and that even in and of itself opens them up to experience other experiences where the world might be unstable in other ways right um if you see one miracle two miracles might be possible and yeah the it is definitely true right if you could lose your home your home itself could be unsteady there could be a person in your closet you know um, <laughs> yeah they, it's they, true <laughs> you know they talk about that a lot like um um shit what's her name uh carol clover who wrote uh men women and chainsaws she has a bit where she talks about um in supernatural movies there are a lot of times like a death that occurs outside of the actual like plots that opens the characters up to the possibility of another side so like in poltergeist her like pet bird dies yeah and she's like oh do you think the pet bird is in heaven and that opens up an awareness of this other realm that might exist and so when uh the poltergeist actually starts to interact with the family they're already open to the possibility of that hmm. and um that's definitely true in like the conjuring which is just in the front of my mind because of annabelle well um, and it's something that uh in terms of the economics being um a you know sort of avenue for talking about home destabilization i mean that's like the the bread and butter of the ocean at the end of the lane right like it opens up with oh my God, um yeah with them being needing to sell off parts of their property and then like the house, you know, potentially being unstable, then it becomes maybe the relationship between the mother and father are unstable. Then it's maybe the father's abusive. So you have this unraveling that also feeds into like the magical undercurrent of that world, which is that the universe itself might be at risk because of this destabilizing force. Yeah, um, and they, they talk about that in the first like 10 pages too, um, where like the entire, it's not just the one house, but the entire lane is just, is having paranormal, 
experiences, yeah. right? Like um, the dude who has like fingers coming out of his eyes. Yes, or yes, yes. Um, when he looks in the mirror and shit like that. Um, so it's it is like that whole world is just going haywire. Yeah, so we have that here to start off with, like, the economic depression. And, I mean, just not to, like, speak for you, but building off of that, uh, there's something that's very rust-built-y about this town. Because yeah. it's, like, it's definitely built around a factory. It's all these old brick houses with, like, massive mansion-like, you know, sort of proportions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, creepy house uh, of, like, rural Americana and you have in um the tv adaptation a lot of boarded up windows like you keep passing by these houses that are full of like boarded up windows and like drawn shutters and they say that in the book too all the shutters are drawn like everything seems to be desiccated and like falling apart so it feels very much like a you know sort of factory town where the factory went bust and what do we do now the town itself is is dead right yeah um, and he even says in the show, try to remember we're more fortunate than most. And I think the situation when that comes up, it, like the context is her being like, there's ghosts in the house. And he's like, shut up. Try to remember we're more fortunate than most. <laughs> like, don't, don't be a pill. But the, the quote still stands. And um, uh, with that, in the book, um, I got my copy right here. Let me flip through. Uh, in the book, they all say, uh, or so they find Compton Dawes, and Compton Dawes turns out to be dead, right? And he says, this was a normal town once, and we were normal people. Most of us worked in the plastics factory on the outskirts of town. Then there was an accident. Something escaped from the factory, a yellow gas. It floated over the town. So fast we didn't see it, didn't realize. And then it was too late, and Dark Falls wasn't a normal town anymore. We were all dead, Amanda, dead and buried but we couldn't rest. We couldn't sleep. Dark Falls was a town of living dead. So, yes, and this is actually what I really love about this, is that as spooky as this is, this is almost a horror story without antagonists. I'm going to I'm going to yeah. do like my my like Marxist read here and say that it's like it's like the, the working class at its own neck here um, because you have these people that have essentially been screwed over by this um, town, you know, by this like company that founded all this. There's, you know, in this case, like there's a supernatural explanation as to why they're all in this position of being essentially needing to consume human flesh. But right. I mean, they're they're all very apologetic about it. Like Ray is very sorry. <laughs> like when yeah. when Ray's floating over Amanda in the graveyard, about to like smother her out and like using his magical powers to suffocate her. Like he's mm-hmm. like, I'm sorry, you weren't supposed to know about this. And then even like Compton Dawes is like, dying doesn't hurt that bad. I'm really sorry that we have to do this. Like we yeah. just need the new blood. You know what I mean? So it's this very right. like interesting. Um, sympathetic bad guy where nobody really wants to be doing the bad thing but they're all doing it you know what i mean they're kind of forced by circumstance to have to do this because this is how they have to survive now very interesting uh you know you think about the monsters as usually being purely malevolent forces in this case it's almost um more not i mean there's not non-malevolence behind almost every everybody's action um yeah uh is anyone in this book evil I think the closest you get is no, I don't know. I don't know. Like in the TV show, you kind of get some creepy vibes off of um, uh, some of the kids. I think the kids are mm-hmm. actually weird wild cards because they keep being. I, I don't 
think there's a whole lot of thought that went into this because it's like we need a scary beat and we need the scary beat to be interrupted but they keep being threatening in ways that like the dead adults of the town need to break up like compton dawes has to stop the kids when they're in that weird shrinking circle around the kids and then compton dawes also has to stop them from like doing something to them in the house or it seems that way whenever he comes Mm -hmm. to the house and rescues the kids but then it turns out he's just taking him to the graveyard for sacrifice. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's the old like, Oh, well come with me. We're getting out of here. And they're like, this isn't the way to the exit. And he's like, I'm sorry, kids. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, do you think that there's a bad guy? Cause I don't know if I think there is, but no, I, I think you're spot on. I think, you know, the, the man, um, comes in and plants this plastic factory in the middle of this space and the town grows around that plastics factory um and that's something that feels very relatable to me because i live in poughkeepsie new york Hmm. um which was very the ibm factory here was really big for a long time and then um it stopped becoming as much of a thing you can still feel that a lot of um in a lot of that i don't know air around here Uh, you know a yellow gas um (laughs) Uh, the ibm yellow gas their patented yeah. mustard gas right. version. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> People don't buy it anymore. That's why the plant shut down. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so uh, if, if anybody is the villain, then it's not the people who are screwed over by that collapse um, or the accident, but it's the um, uh, it's the man, right? It's, yeah. the, it's whoever, whatever company uh, put the plastics factory there in the, in the first place. And, and that's not um, even like directly stated or even heavily implied, like there's no resentment on the part of the dead townsfolk that this happened. It's just the way things are. So like even in, from the perspective of like the text itself, you you don't really have like this menacing Mr. Burns-esque, you know, um, character that like, or like even an implication of that character who came in here, ruined this town and then left without caring. Like everybody right. just kind of seems to be like, this is what happened. This just a thing that happened and it's sad and now we have to eat new blood every year but... yeah and that's sort of out of necessity because if you did have a villain who was present then there's always the possibility that you could team up with the um townsfolk and be like we're we're not the bad guys here like let's get this guy and uh um take down the man I don't know if that yeah sense, but... well and and i think there's something about the hook of uh at the end there right like sort of the the resonant like call of what's continuing that also implies because you have these kids and their adventures over like they've destroyed these people it seems like um these dead you know that were feeding on the living but you know at the very end you have this moment where um amanda again meets the new people that are clearly moving into this dead house and you get this almost like assembly line function and there's lots of times where the way that the people move is is referred to as business-like like Like there's a moment where um they're yeah where they're talking about the kids like um so amanda and josh are like watching the graveyard after they've escaped from mr dawes and all the like dead people are coming up to go like eat their parents and like (laughs) they describe them as like everybody walking around in a business-like manner and i think that there's it's like this is just the way that like they're you know this is just the way that things are in their town you know there's it's yeah. just the way things go, yeah. And um, it, I mean, it's such a brilliant, simple explanation. Uh, there's about twenty seconds in Night of the Living Dead where they're like, 
radiation and then it's never brought up again, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah um and so it's such a, a flimsy uh sort of half excuse that you retain that ambiguity but it's not just ambiguity for ambiguity's sake like there is an explanation that exists but you as an author don't have to address it or you'll just push it into the ground yeah right there are so a I, lot I really of like um random spooks though here and i want to list this because i think that yeah. i want to see if this becomes a trope as we read more of the goosebumps novels is there's like it there's probably will there are like the spooks that pay off and then there are the spooks that are just spooky like um <laughs> like there's the window blowing curtains which you know mm-hmm. never pays off there's no reason for that to be there except that it's spooky right right like right. the whispers clearly indicate presence um mm-hmm. you know the chattering feet like all of those things the piecing the people but um the window curtains blowing and they're not being an open window is just a spook there's the clothes that keep getting laid out on her bed that's oh like God, just yeah. a random spook like she gets in and there's just clothes laid out on her bed and yeah. it's like why are there clothes laid out on their bed and it's just i think a spooky thing that like to imagine these ghost kids going through and like looking at her clothes and then putting them on her bed, you know? Um, yeah, and she's sort of like, um, oh, I guess mom puts this out for me. And I noticed too that there's this um, irrational rationality in the way that they address all of these situations where like um, in the adaptation, they find a hole in the cellar door and they're like, oh, who made this uh, big hole in the cellar door? Petey, that must have been you. And then uh, Amanda's like, how could he have done that? And Josh goes, oh, well, you know how he's like. Um, <laughs> you like, know how he's like breaking doors all the time. Yeah, this little terrier. slams his snout. Into the... <laughs> um, and I was like, how do you, you have to go out of your way to retain uh, some kind of rational explanation. Yeah. Reason. And that's something this show does do well is they do the random spooks well. There's also like the hole that's in her closet that her dad patches up with drywall. And then a guy just puts yeah. his fist through it like a dead yeah. person in the middle of the night and they come back right. out and they're like oh there's another hole in the wall that's weird and that's it like that's how they treat it but it's right. uh it's also maybe it's animals in the wall who knows you know um, at a certain point like if your kid is like there's a man in the closet you're like okay the first time you're like all right i'll check out the closet but then you got to go back to sleep and the second time if there's a hole in the closet you're like okay clearly a full-grown man is trying to get into your closet <laughs> like this is um that's what i mean like you have to go out of your way in order to not have faith or or like if if rationality is your faith you are just not budging from that shit yeah so oh go ahead oh no i was just gonna say um uh next so yeah we have the uh americana um like financial narrative we also have i think here like this and this is like a kind of coming of age tale for Amanda, um, in the sense that you know she's 12 and this adventure defines her not just in terms of like a thing that happened to her, but a thing that like causes her to listen to her intuitions. And so, I do think there's gotcha. something here too that, like, if you're looking at the underlying tension of this piece, I kept asking myself, why are we having all these like fake spooks and why are we having all of these moments where Amanda is being told. Um, I wish you would stop seeing things like her brother Josh says that at one point to her uh, like I wish you would stop seeing things and you know her parents keep telling her like there's nothing there and she has this like internal you know dilemma that's going on whether or not to trust her intuitions but like that kind of comes to its crowning and I think that 
the reason we have that there is not just to pad out the runtime. You could say that, like, you know, well, he needs to get his uh, whatever, however much this is. This has got to be 20,000 words. I mean, it's like... Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, it's pretty uh, short. I mean, maybe 40,000 words. Yeah, uh... I would say I would say like maybe twenty five thousand. It's one hundred and twenty three pages. Um, not sure. to yeah, sorry. yeah. Here, yeah. it's this it's this, it's thin. this thing. Did you want to see it? Um, can everyone see this? Okay, <laughs> uh, it's about this thick. Yeah, no, you you. There's some padding involved for sure, which is I guess the same as like a movie. You need it to be ninety minutes, so you might as well like keep punching that. Yeah, um, but as much as we dwell on, as much as like we might be padding some of these scares out, there's a lot of dwelling on Amanda's inability to uh, trust her own intuitions. And then again, at the end, we come to this moment where it's almost becomes an adventure book where her intuition is we need to push a tree down. And, you know, there's a lot of justification for this in that the tree is like on a hillside and has its roots exposed and like, you know, seems like it is precarious, but she... She has this moment where she says, oh, let me see, I, I kept a note about this. Um, she says, I know I can do it. Like, right? So that's the thing that's really interesting. Yeah. It's like she has this intuition and it's like, I'm going to push the tree down. And then she's like, I know I can do it. I knew I could. And then she convinces right. Josh and then they push the tree down. At first they try and it seems like it failed. And that's the like hook for the end of that chapter. But then it actually collapses and it turns out that's how she saves her family. So there's... Yeah, that's so... Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, so there's also this, like, there's this Americana subtext, but there's also this kind of subtext of, like, the proper, not just the spooks of, the of like, the med, the major narrative, but the meta narrative being this coming-of-age story where Amanda has to learn to trust her feelings, essentially, and that's her superpower. Yeah, it's so true, and that really is the, the climax of that plot, right, where she, every moment that she has for the rest of the book is, like, I knew that it wasn't my imagination. I know that I'm not making this up. But then the next, a couple scenes later, she uh, regresses. Yeah. Back. She she takes that back. She's like, oh gosh, well it's a it's a pretty sunny day, so maybe I did make the ghosts up, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, or like whatever whatever rationality she uses in order to to question her own experience of the world, um, and that's such a. Oh, something about that makes me mad too. Like as a kid, you can be like, <laughs> so you're exactly right. I would, I would be curious to see if uh, Goosebumps number two uh, goes the same kind of way. Where like this is your adventure, learning to trust your instincts. And your yeah, head. yeah. Um, and I noted too that like the um, idea of kids having an adventure was still, um, I, I think in the aughts and like, um, oh geez, we're not even in the 2010s anymore. Um, I think in the last like couple decades, it's become less of a thing. The idea of a group of kids having an adventure, but it came out. Uh, the book it came out in 1986, and this was only six years yeah, after that. Yeah. So um, that and, and you know the Goonies was like 84, and this was very much in that time period of like kids having an adventure. And like in the beginning of the book, a couple times, the parents are like, just get out of my way, go find some other kids down the street to play with. And you could never have a parent say that in the book now. <laughs> yeah, it's well, like, um, and, and like, and they're just like, I don't know, criminally irresponsible about this dog, Petey. Petey goes missing and they're yeah. like, and they're like, oh, but we've got our dinner party. Like, <laughs> yeah, we'll find him after lunch. Um, and it just like you, yeah. you would never have a parent character now in a book that would be like, um, 
like like Josh goes missing for a second, and um, now if that happened, they'd be like, "Oh shit, we got to find Josh now because it's been about a minute, and he's probably already dead." Um, and it's like we got to go locate him. Uh, but in 1992, they're like, "Oh, that little prick, where'd he go?" He he's um, always running off. <laughs> oh, he's always running away. Um, <laughs> but uh, getting himself kidnapped, how dare he? They're like, um, I think they even say when he's gone, they're like, he probably ran away so that we would think he was mad or something like that. Like he's like in this neighborhood he's never been in before, and they're like yeah. mad at him for being gone. <laughs> they're like, yeah. That's such a that's such a '90s experience. Be like, go explore this neighborhood alone and tell me what it looks like, and I'll have a beer. Um, <laughs> instead of like, let's explore it together and hold my hand, and also I'm taping you to my body. Um, <laughs> but it's still. I remember growing up in the '90s, like just walking to school, you know, which is a very different. Sure. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's not different. I guess it depends on the part of the country you're in. But it's certainly not the norm. That's fair. Yeah, uh, certainly not the norm anymore, for sure. And um, I want to say a couple more things about yeah. uh, what I noticed about the book as far as, like, the writing, like, the craft of it. Um, all the characters, and I remember this about Goosebumps books in general, all the characters are really flat. So they have yes. one defining attribute, and they carry that through. Um, and... Um, I remember like first learning about that with Dickens novels. You know, like if you have a 900 page novel, you have to be sure that the audience, the, the, the readership can recognize like, oh, well, this character has a beard. Yeah. And so then every time um, you see the character with a beard, you're like, oh, shit, that's Mr. Um, Mr. So-and-so. Uh, or like, uh, you know, Miss Havisham is always in her fucking wedding dress. Right. Um, <laughs> And uh, so they're like, wash that thing, lady. It's been months. You're like, it's been months. It's like, yeah, you pick up chapter three, three months after chapter one came out or whatever. You know, um, I don't know how exactly how it was serialized. Um, but like, um, and as a kid, that's the sort of simplicity that you click with a lot. So like the dad, we've got a fat dad here, right? She says a couple of times, like his shirt comes untucked. Yeah. Because he's overweight. Um, and yeah. Um, and the mom has like black hair and i remember too uh, we'll see like if this is actually accurate the more goosebumps books that we read but it'd be like um you have the the main character the narrator um sort of the protagonist and they're 12 and yeah. they have one thing that makes them different like they're a girl who likes sports or a boy who is way more into cars than he should be um or like um they don't have any friends yeah, yeah, yeah there's there's something that makes them the outsider so that you as an outsider sitting alone at recess reading a goosebumps book can connect with them um and then that's their defining attribute um and then they have a sibling um who or a friend who has one thing that makes them weird so in this one i was sort of like oh josh is stubborn he's annoying he's stubborn and annoying, he's annoying. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah he's stubborn and annoying uh, but i think there are more specific ones as we go further into the thing um so those are my couple uh notes and then i would cut at one point she's like uh amanda is hanging out with her old friend kathy and talking about how she's gonna miss kathy in the old town before they move cut it you don't need it um, <laughs> cut kathy in the adaptation there's like 20 seconds where she's writing a letter and she goes dear jennifer uh new house is spooky and you're like okay great i get it she has friends all you need yep yeah it's interesting um first off 
it's interesting that they changed Kathy to Jennifer and that boils my blood in a way that I don't understand. Why? It makes me okay. so angry. I don't understand why, like there's two things they changed from the adaptation that really stood yeah. out to me. So uh -huh. dark falls is four hours away from her home. And she says it several times in the book. It's five yeah. hours in the TV show. <laughs> it's such an arbitrary change. And her best friend is Kathy in the book, and it's Jennifer in the TV show. And I just don't understand. Yeah. Like, there's a part of me that is, it just, like, was, is Jennifer just a better name? I mean, Jennifer's a very popular name in the 90s. Maybe it's just Jennifer was a more popular name. Sure, um, yeah. You're right. You can cut all the Kathy stuff. The only thing that I think it adds is it does add a little bit of breathing room after we have the first spooky house introduction. And that might be, it might be padding yeah, it true. out, we but it's like we have out. the spooky house introduction, then there's like go back home, and then there's come back to the spooky house. And so it gives you a little bit more reason to go back home. It's a good point. I mean, yeah, um, I did notice in the adaptation, as we're seeing them drive into Dark Falls, uh, there is the sense of like entering the other or yeah. the outside, and you get to watch them go far out of their way in order to enter this spooky space um and that's sort of present in the book too and like when they're um it's late at night and their parents aren't home and josh is like amanda we gotta go find Petey," and she's like well screw it uh i mean the rest of the town can't be any creepier than my own bedroom so that she, <laughs> it's like, true um so the entire town down to like the bed that she sleeps in is this outside place and there's no escaping from it so if you hit a certain point where you're like fuck it we, we gotta find pd and we gotta get the hell out of here it doesn't matter like um where i am in this space because everywhere in the space is the same and um, the spookiness becomes routine there's a moment where when the last time there's clothes arranged on her bed where she comes up to her room and she hears the voices you know at the closet and the steps in the dark and she's like but it doesn't even scare me anymore because that's just the sound of my bedroom now. And I'm like, Jesus. This is it really quickly. Yeah. And <laughs> she's like, I'm not even afraid of it anymore. <laughs> yeah. So it is yeah. very, it feels very otherworldly. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's great. So, um, so the adaptation, this is the first, so not only the first book, Goosebumps book I've ever read, it's the first Goosebumps TV show I've ever seen. And I, oh. I highly encourage anybody who's listening to this to go out and watch a goosebumps tv show if only for the introduction that first 30 <laughs> seconds is gold um theme song. solid gold i put it on yeah. this morning just to like you know get my brain back in the tv show and yeah. um nora my wife was laughing from the from the other room uh just yeah. listening to the sound of, the, of this introduction <laughs> there's like a moment where there's like a digital dog bark to the sound of the music that's like yeah. as the dog's eyes go all yellow and creepy that's on camera it's very spooktacular and that's also very americana too i mean the thing so it's this floating the floating goosebumps g <laughs> and it goes down the street um and um, everything it, it touches gets spookified Right, and so what does it touch? It's like a golden retriever, yeah. a billboard, yes, and uh, maybe like one other thing. And then it goes up a porch into a door, and that's when we start seeing all of the the you know B roll from other Goosebumps shows, right? Like, creepy bugs, yeah. a face of a dummy, you know that's sort right. Of stuff. And so it's this very like Bradbury white picket fence, and it first floats out of Arl Stein's briefcase. Yes, that's and right. Arl Stein himself is like the the man in black. Or black hat black coat um 
Or I guess I don't remember if he's wearing a black hat. But I, I, I'll say confidently that he is. Yes. I don't give a shit if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's wearing a black hat. He's fuck. He's wearing three black hats. He's, he's got They're all stacks. stacked on top of he's each got other. A stack of hats. Yeah. Uh, and it, the G floats out of his briefcase and um, goes down the street. And so it's this very like that's outside evil too, right? You have the white picket fence town. All, every house has a porch uh, and a dog. Then here comes the traveling salesman, and out of his case floats the the evil magic um, that corrupts your your um, ideal suburban paradise or yeah, rural paradise. Yeah, your little suburban paradise. You you fuck. Well, or it's more like midwestern. It's like your midwestern Ohio small town that yeah. is now all spookified. But so as yeah, we... so tell me about the adaptation. So. Like you said, it opens and closes with Arl Stein, which is its own little delightful um, like slice of life. Just to see this guy who never, ever thought he was going to be in front of a camera um, walk out. And he looks like an old like New Yorker that would be out of a Woody Allen movie. And he kind of yeah. talks like one, too. Like You can tell he worked at Scholastic in New York. He's got a little bit of that Manhattan <laughs> accent where he's like, he's like I'm Arl Stein you know yeah so did you know anything about this man before no you... okay. so I, I did a little research mm-hmm. so here's a couple things i do want to say about rl stein that are just like <laughs> stand out uh moments that he probably connected with people in ways they don't know so do you remember the nick jr show eureka's castle nope oh my god go you know what you probably do so it's okay okay uh, it's like so forgettable it's like a puppet show um oh, but it's like in the vein of like a jim henson knockoff and as soon as i saw that i was like what's this thing and went and looked at the first youtube uh could of uh, a eureka's castle episode that um opening brought it back but that was his first thing is he was the head writer for a nick jr's like teach your kids abc show called eureka's castle in the 1980s um wow the 80s yeah he wrote a bunch of choose your own adventure books and a bunch of G.I. Joe comics in the 80s as well under the wow. pseudonym Eric Afebe. Um, oh, okay. And he started with Scholastic at first uh, as the head of one of their um, magazines under the name Jovial Bob Stein. So he oh, was boy. writing this like comedy uh, magazine piece uh, for Scholastic. Um, it ended up it was called oh, it was called bananas that's right and it ended up uh <laughs> it ended up going bunk during a reorg and that's when he started writing his own books here's something interesting goosebumps was his second scary series so he wrote a bunch of he wrote over 100 novels in this uh um series called fear street in the late 1980s oh, that's right yeah and then okay. um from there started goosebumps in the early 90s so so that's my R.L. Stein download, but um, one of the things that was really interesting to me that I read about him is, because I read a couple of interviews, is he said Pinocchio was actually the iconic horror piece that he tried to emulate. Um, and he was talking about how it was just like this original, terrifying piece of like body transformation and body horror. And he talks mm. about specifically remembering as a kid... Um, that he goes to sleep with his feet in the fire, the puppet, and his feet burned off. And he, like, that stayed with him for the rest of his life. And he wanted to try to create horror moments like that for kids where they'd have these weird body horror uh, experiences. So, Jeez, um, okay. 
so that's that's uh old man Arl Stein, but he opens up this adaptation which is surprisingly different from the mm. um book. Right. Well we start um with them coming into Dark Falls and we see their house and um all the people in the town are noticeably gray. Yes. Right? They're gray um, from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And there's one point when um, Amanda's friend Karen sits down next to Amanda and the color palette is just completely different. Um, it's, it's really crazy. But so they drive into the house and the first thing that the mom unpacks is that the ugliest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's um, a wreath made out of like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's made out of like old buttons and pieces of wigs and And like like weird flowers dried flowers yeah dried flowers and like scraps of cloth and shit and it's just a wreath it's like those old potpourri jars that your grandma used to have if somebody were to like pour glue in a circle and then pour the potpourri onto one of those things it's like a weird collection of just like things that look like they're flowers and things that look fake it's very odd yeah if you had a very old grandmother with lots of like potpourri bowls and and weird like knickknacks, like I think of like my grandma had a stuffed uh, chipmunk in her house, uh, <laughs> like a taxidermy little chipmunk. And so if you took a bunch of shit, if Leatherface took all of those things from your grandma's <laughs> house and made a wreath out of it, that's what this fucking thing looks like. And they frame it, and the mom is like, "This has been in my family for generations. It's a good luck charm." And um, we have to put it over the mantle. So they hang it up. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So they hang up this thing and then um, that becomes the central MacGuffin instead of Petey, you know, (laughs) so Petey's like the MacGuffin of the first half of the book in that, you know, clearly the kids are trying to do something to get, you know, they're playing these baseball games. It seems like almost as a, like lure so that Petey will be out there and eventually Petey disappears and goes away and he's no longer protection for them. Um, oh, and in geez. this one, I get that at all. Oh no. I think it's... that's totally why they were playing baseball because they have okay. Petey out there. And all right. No, I, be- I believe it. I was just like, Oh Jesus, Ben smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> <I> interpret. <laughs> it's, well, it's funny. Cause it's like, at least I, maybe it's because I saw the show, but it's like, they have a trick in the show to get the potpourri thing off the wall just like they kind of had a trick to get yeah. Petey as a MacGuffin out of the picture. Yeah. Um, so what's what's their trick to get the wreath off the wall? How so do they do it in the show? They literally have a Night of the Living Dead moment where the dead people chase the kids from the graveyard to their spooky house and then stand outside the windows while the parents are there. And mm-hmm. there's a couple of the dead people inside, but the parents don't realize they're dead people. And they're like, oh, maybe all of this started happening because of that wreath. When did you hang it up? When we first got here. Oh, now all those dead people are out there. So they get them to yeah. throw the wreath into the fire before immediately turning around and being like, ha ha, you dumb bitch. Um, we're dead too. Now we're going to eat you. It's like this very surreal moment yeah. that is clearly written so that all of the kids that are watching this are going to be like, no, 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 don't throw the wreath in the fire. Um, yeah. It's it's true. And um, as like a sidebar too, I love that in the show – the dead people have specific rules like in the book sort of like okay what's what's the um what are the rules like the dead people can't really be out in the sun or yeah. they they melt um they 
sometimes can float like ray floats and his eyes turn red and Petey's eyes turn red when he's dead yeah but that's the only really times that that happens um and somehow they need new blood but it's unclear if they like eat the kids or just kill them just to like have the bodies um like if they literally need the blood or like what exactly is going on there but then or like he you know uh ray says like oh they kill the dogs first who um and um then in the show we the kids are trying to find Petey, and they go into the cemetery and they see all the townsfolk um in an organized meeting led by the mayor of the town (laughs) yes this is Um, right i'm remembering this now yeah and uh i was just struck by that because i was like wow the the show actually gives the dead people concrete rules where they are they are the living dead but they also can't be in sun. That's and there's something. like one guy who's like at that meeting who's like, I need to feed soon. And the mayor's like, no, no, don't worry. I know it's been a while for you. So you'll be first in line to feed. Like there's yeah. like, they're like arranging an order of operations for how they're going right. to kill this family. They're, yeah. they're rotting. Um, <laughs> and that's some like classic walking dead shit. Like they, um, yeah, they are this... rotting. Yeah. Right. There's this great bit in um, like every season of The Walking Dead, um, the zombies get more and more rotten because their bodies are just decomposing over time. Um, So like the zombies in the first season are kind of fresh looking and gooey. But then by the third season, they're really dry looking and weird. Yes. Um, So the same sort of rules seem to apply. Uh, and it's a more concrete world which i appreciated i like to know what game i'm playing yeah and i gotta give the makeup people props for this show being what it is um with a moment where literally at the end as the kids pull down the board somebody blew a smoke machine up in the air and everybody kind of like does the dinosaur downwards to like disappear (laughs) like they do a little dance move um where it's like walk like an egyptian except they're going down the stairs and then they disappear in a puff of smoke so that's their level of technical expertise when it comes to people vanishing but this mm-hmm. makeup looks legit walking dead makeup sometimes when they do a close-up on like ray's face in the woods yeah it's uh it's coming apart and it's got like you know some real rod around the mouth it's, it's nice looking yeah and they all wear hats to keep the sun up. they all wear hats um i also want to give props to uh whoever did amanda's wardrobe because it's the most 90s thing i've ever seen she's got like <laughs> blue jeans with like patches that look like they've been made from old bandanas sewed into the knees and she's got like a blue jean jacket and this like pink shirt that's like clearly designed for a 12 year old even though she's like an 18 year old actress like um that's got like a flower on it's just very 90s though yeah it's really great Uh, yeah so uh what did you i kind of said all my notes about the adaptation already what did you want to add about um... so i just got to do some shout outs here um so i looked up these actors these people have had consistent work um just so you know almost all of them except for the guy whose name is just dad so the mom is the mom is penelope benson but the dad is just credited as dad um benedict campbell uh played him it looked like he hasn't really done any work in the last couple of years but almost everyone else mr dawes um he was ian clark he's been in a ton of stuff um like just as side characters no major roles but he's been working up until the like sort of last couple years amanda benson did something this last year um her name's amy stewart and then my guy hard hat worker 
So Hard Hat Worker yes. has the best death scene when he vanishes. This guy is killing it. Um, yeah. Wide-eyed, just, yeah, does the big dance all the way down into the smoke. Um, yeah. That Oh, go on ahead. Uh, just the, the adaptation really adds to the economic read and that, like, all the dead people have a clear vocation. Yes, they're they do. blue-collar, working class. Like, they're in overalls, uh, mechanic suits, a uh, hard hat. They, they are clearly policemen, um, you know, yeah. like fire dudes. Even the mayor looks like a small town mayor. Like he's got like his bowler hat <laughs> yeah. and like his like rotting the suit. Mustache. The mustache. He's got the stash. Anyway. Hard hat worker. That guy's name is Scott Wickware. Scott Wickware mm. has 133 acting credits. No um, way. And his shtick is that he mostly plays police officers. So Scott, wherever okay. you are out there. He's got a police officer's oh. face, apparently, and a, he's, like, got this solid hard hat worker. Guys, I'm telling you, you have to watch these last 20 seconds of part two just so you can see this guy do the best death I've seen in a very long time. Um, All right. Very solid. I'll, I'll rewatch it. I'll check it out for Scott. Um, Scott, we're thinking about you. Um, <laughs> hope you're doing well. Anything else about the adaptation that you want to say or shout out? Oh, I've got it. I'm sorry. This is the last thing. Um no, the, go ahead. the dad, Benedict Campbell, he uh, was the voice of um, of Martin in Redwall, the Redwall series. Oh, okay. That's a good credit. Yeah, so that was his big thing is he did the TV series and then he was Papa Bear in a couple Berenstain Bear adaptations, but he's mostly a voice wow. actor. So Interesting. So, yeah, we got to also throw it out to Benedict Campbell, um, king of the 90s, man. Wow, yeah. Benedict, we're thinking about you, wherever you are, <laughs> you and Scott. Um, but I think that's it for me. Um, solid, as somebody who's never seen or read a Goosebumps, um, I'm really excited about what's to come. I want to see how the tropes develop. <laughs> I want to see how we continue to you know, explore um, blossoming uh, and growing up as a young person in spooky situations. And I'm excited for more Americana. That's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, so um, I have two questions for you, Ben. Um, number one, would you recommend Welcome to Dead House, both the book and the adaptation? Oh, the adaptation, I would definitely recommend watching um, in snippets or putting it on in the background oh. when you're doing something else. It's not like riveting, and the spooks are all pretty um, pretty low-quality spooks. There's not a lot of like actual spooky silliness. It is almost bad enough to be funny a couple times but it's never quite get quite gets there but there's yeah. like solid moments and it's definitely worth it like to have those like again mr hardhead man dying was like the highlight of my evening really the other did night it, for you. it did yeah. and there was like a couple of other like silly spooks that happened that were really great mm -hmm. so i'd say as an adult only watch it if you can put it on in the background but you'll really appreciate some of those moments um, cool. For the book, um, I thought it was really good. Uh, I'm interested to see where it goes. It feels like he put a lot of thought into this one, um, but he also wrote two other books this year, um, but came out in 1992. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see how the quality is maintained. But for this one, at least, I, I think that it's definitely got some things that are worth exploring and having fun with. Well, uh, I agree. I, I really liked uh, both the book and the adaptation. I mean, I don't know. Um, actually, I mean, I must have uh, read. I was really anal about reading books in order. Uh, so like all the Animorphs books, I read in order. Um, 
and I had friends who didn't exactly do that. And I was like, um, how, how, but, how do you, yeah, I was like, ow. Um, but the goosebumps, I mean, whatever goosebumps you could get, you just like, what I, uh, I, I do have one more thing to say about the book. Um, so I saw that it came, I originally, when I reread it a couple months ago, um, got a copy from the library and it was the updated like 2017 version and um, they changed the date of the kids' deaths on the tombstones. Oh, so that makes sense. This was like because nineteen nineteen eighty eight yeah. was like when the most one of the most recent kids had died, and then they say at one point right. eighty nine, so that you can tell there's one every year. But yeah, okay, go on right. Ahead, I'm sorry. But so they they in the book they were like, oh, he died in two thousand six, and I was like, the fuck uh, in the future. <laughs> Um, oh, that's funny. Was, you know, but as a in 2017, you're reading this as uh, someone who is as old as I would have been when I read this. You're born in 2009. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so uh, 2006, you're like, oh, that's ancient history because I wasn't alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is the same as like if it was 18 or uh, 1989, you'd be like, oh, fuck, that's the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. If you were born in 92, you know. But anyway, so yeah, I would I would wreck uh, both of them. Um, I thought it was really fun. You'd wreck them, so we're gonna call it. We're I'd gonna say them. double wreck. Two thumbs up. Two spooks up. Two two wrecks. Um, it's a, it's a nice T Rex. Um, <laughs> what do you? So I know you don't remember uh, "Stay Out of the Basement," which is uh, Goosebumps number two. Oh my god! Which, okay, that's number two. Um, next week we're gonna be talking about Goosebumps number two. Uh, Stay out of the basement. Ben, as you said, you haven't read any of the Goosebumps books. No. Um, the cover of Stay Out of the Basement is a uh, uh, hand covered in plants, Here, show it to me. Like a I want to see it. The spooky monster hands. Ooh, it does have plants on it. That looks like very yeah. uh, Swamp Thing-ish. It's very Swamp Thing-ish, and it's, it's clawing its way, or it's opening um, a door that is clearly the basement door, because it's dark in there. It's, it's Stay Out of the Basement. And then the tagline is something's waiting oh. in the dark. <laughs> See these taglines, like, man. We need to bring back taglines for novels. Like instead of these yeah. descriptions, I want – I'm reading The Overstory right now, which is a very, uh, very good book about trees. And it's beautiful. It's <laughs> lyrical. It's like, you know, epic in scope. Um, you know, it's all about, you know, just the sort of the movement of like arborists in the 1980s. There's lots of things happening in it. Um, but I would love it if on the front of the overstory, it said, I don't know, there's something in the branches waiting for you. I would love that. I would yeah. be like, you're like, can we just please bring this back for serious, non-serious novels? Like, I want to see yeah. more taglines on the cover. Because it doesn't matter, right? If no. you, on the cover of, um, Goosebumps, it says somewhere like Stephen King says, I like this book. Does he? Yeah, who you cares? Know, or is he just saying that because he was hired to, to give a review? Or like even um, even worse when it's like a magazine, when it's like five stars, yeah. Newsweek. You're like, yeah, okay, good. Right. I'm glad Thank this God. one got. I'm glad this one got the Newsweek rating. But so uh, okay. yeah, it, it doesn't matter as long as it's working as a tagline. Don't go out of your way to to get a quote. Just say something's waiting in the goddamn dark. Okay. So what do you remember um, about this book, Sam? I mean, I don't know. Does this one? Do you remember if this has an adaptation? Do you remember what happens? 
It definitely has an adaptation, okay, which good. I only know because as I was scrolling through other Goosebumps episodes to get to um, Welcome to Dead House, I, I saw it. Oh, good. Um, so you don't remember the adaptation, so... which is telling. Nope. All right. Um, no, I, I um, the few adaptations I remember uh, watching would be like, uh, I think it's called Terror Tower. Okay. And um, the one about the spooky camera. Something Those are really neat. Yeah, those are really the only two that I remember. And uh, so Stay Out of the Basement, I don't remember if this is one of them, but I remember that there is like a couple Goosebumps books where kids spend some amount of time, spring break or the summer or whatever, at um, an aunt or uncle's house or like some relative or friend or whatever. And there's some other in there too, right? Or like outside evil, okay. I should say, where like you're going to a space that is outside your realm of comfortability um and i i don't remember if this is one of those or not so we'll see we'll see um that is literally all i remember about <laughs> this book um good and i sort of flipped through to the first page to see if the first line could help me out and the first line is hey dad catch um <laughs> good so, so not jogging any memories good though we'll be nope. on the same page like yeah for sure I mean, I'm sure it'll start kicking some things into gear once you start getting into the actual plot, but we'll be on relatively the same page, at least in terms of what we're going into. So that's good. Yeah, and I really didn't remember any of Welcome to Dead House, too. It's entirely possible that I actually hadn't read that one before. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I remember reading um, the Night of the Living Dummy ones. I remember, like, the one about sharks and shit. Uh, I remember Terror Tower, for sure. I remember a bunch of them, but Welcome to Dead House, not necessarily... But th this one, I'll probably, um, uh, who gives a shit? Let's, uh, <laughs> um, well, I mean, lots to look forward to. In the meantime, um, we don't have an outro yet. This is still new. So nope. I guess uh, stay spooky. We'll say that for now. Yeah, stay, stay spooky. Stay, what's, what's, stay tubular. Um, stay tubular? <laughs> no, that? I'm thinking 90s things. What do you say? What's a 90s thing? Uh, no, you nailed it, man. Be radical. Yes. Be radical, stay guys. And be radical. Peace. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> All right, bye, guys. Bye.